welcome to I Dry Needle to the Point. I'm your host, Paul Flores. Today we answer some of the common questions. Oh boy, if you're joining us on the recording, you just missed an hour of content. Just kidding, you missed uh, the first discussion. I went live on Instagram, went live on Facebook, but I didn't launch Zoom. Again, I can focus on one to one and a half things at a time, according to my wife. So uh, I apologize. And maybe I'll touch on the finer points at the end for those who already heard it can jump off. But we're talking through dry needling spiels, dry needling scripts, how to communicate. The one that you missed, if you're watching the recording, is how do I introduce dry needling to a new patient? And I painted two different personas, the patient that comes in knowing that needles are involved and how do you introduce it to them? And then the patient that really didn't know as a physical therapist, you might be using needles. So sorry, Shannon, it's gonna add like 15 minutes at the end, but I'll come back to that last um, so that if you were listening this whole time, you don't have to stay on. Cause now we're at point number two, which is how to introduce consent for dry needling. And again, uh, if it wasn't launched or not on the recording, this is not legal advice. You need to go through all of your, your own legal and risk assessment channels. Um, I can't give you that legal advice. I'm a physical therapist and I have um, enough with the, the business side and the, and the therapy side that I know nothing about the legal side. So uh, it is worth saying, I'll, I'll paint the good and the bad here. It's worth saying that there are risks to dry needling. They're obvious. You can cause a pneumothorax. Honestly, you can cause uh, more physical harm with the needle than almost any other tool in our physical therapy clinic. But the good news is uh, CNA actually would disagree with that. They would say the highest risk, uh, the most injuries in a PT clinic or the highest risk tool is a hot pack. You burn your patients and the most common injury is a fracture. So the good news is CNA actually just two weeks ago released their, their latest, ver, uh, latest edition of their claim report. And just like previous editions, they said the risk of pneumothorax or the risk of a needle injury from physical therapists is minimal. They have not noticed a statistically, and for them, it's a very financially statistic um, data, they have not seen a significant increase in patient harm from PTs using a needle. So that's the good news. If you're fully trained, if you're doing it properly and you're uh, honestly introducing it properly uh, to the pr proper patients, then the risk is very low. But we do need to appreciate this is an invasive procedure. And honestly, what comes with that is a much more uh, diligent informed consent. So again, this is not legal advice, but I'm gonna give you a few challenges or a few recommendations when it comes to dry needling consent. And I can already see from some of the folks joining us on Instagram that not everyone is in the US. So this is coming from US liability trends. It's a very litigious, very risk adverse, especially in the healthcare realm uh, mindset. But here are a few challenges. First of all, legal consent is um, or I should say legal consent for a minor is having um, an adult, a parent, or a guardian sign if they're under the age of 18. I mean, that's kind of obvious. Uh, if they're not 18 or older, then the patient has to be present to have written 
consent on that first session. I would highly recommend that they stay for that first session so that they can hear the explanation, uh, both the benefit and the risk of why you're doing it, even the explanation of uh, soreness is normal. So that when Junior comes home and he's like, man, my calf is really sore. They did this uh, injection therapy in my calf and now it really hurts. Um, having the patient knowing those risks, knowing that that's expected, and honestly knowing the misnomer that it's not an injection, it's a monofilament needle, it's very different. Uh, you can um, avoid a lot of miscommunication, minor to adult, just by having them present on the first visit. But beyond that, so if they're 18 or if they're younger than 18, you need the parental uh, written signed consent. I would also say you need the youth consent. Um, there's only been a few scenarios uh, throughout the years of needling where honestly the, the parent, typically they're the ones that have had needling before, they've, they've seen the benefit of needling and their son, their daughter, there are dance moms out there that want their, their seven, eight, nine-year-old daughters to come in and get needled just to uh, you know, decrease that three out of 10 foot pain or even uh, for recovery or to improve their performance. Uh, and same goes for Little League youth sports. Youth sports is a very competitive arena. So sometimes there is this scenario where the patient is full, uh, the parent, sorry, is fully giving consent um, and legally you have it. It's written, the parent is saying, go ahead and needle junior. Uh, I would heavily uh, encourage you to require the youth consent as well. And that can be a touchy scenario, the, pa the parent in the room or not. Um, but again, it's only happened a few times throughout my career where um, the mother is consenting. Every piece of uh, the look in the eye, the body language from the eight-year-old says, I don't want needles. So that was just a very frank uh, explanation, not even to, um, to the minor, but to the parent is, uh, I know you had great benefit from needling uh, and that's excellent. Uh, I think it's something that could help, but uh, it doesn't seem like the right option at this point for junior. So even though legally you're giving me consent, uh, I really think we should start with something else. I think we should try, you know, there's other manual therapy techniques, there's other exercises. I don't think needling is really the, the first treatment we should try with junior. So I, I would encourage to have uh, the adult, but also the youth consent. I would also recommend, um, and again, not every clinic follows this. Again, I'm not here to give legal advice, but I would recommend, I would challenge you, I'd encourage to have a separate dry needling consent form. Again, I know there's people out there that say if the dry needling was in the plan of care and they signed off, uh, they consented to the plan of care that that covers it. And honestly, legally, you can probably defend that stance. I would just say, and I'll go into some of the CNA informed consent recommendations from their claim report in a second, but I would say needling is novel enough, it's unique enough, it's invasive enough with, uh, it has unique risk that you should have a separate form. And honestly, I wouldn't just slip it as the last form in their stack of 12 page paperwork. We all know by that point, they're just signing everything that has a line on it. So again, just to give you my spiel or my scenario, uh, they've signed everything else. We've gone back. Welcome to the clinic. You know, I'm Paul. I'm going to be your PT today. Dr. Paul, whatever you want to call yourself. Um, you do your evaluation back to point number one of uh, whether you knew needling or not. Like, I think this is something worth trying. Here's the consent form. You know, it's a one page consent form. 
take two minutes to read it over. Uh, it talks about my experience up top. It talks about the risks. Uh, the most serious risk involved with dry needling is if a needle ever enters the lung field, it's called a pneumothorax. Uh, that is a risk of any needling procedure around the thorax, uh, dry needling or injections. Uh, it has a few questions on the bottom. Uh, and if you're comfortable, I want you to sign. Um, and I do give them a minute. I mean, I deliberately say, take a minute to read it over. I wanna answer any questions. But that little spiel right there, and again, it gets more comfortable the more confident you are, the more often times you do it. But again, on level one, we hear, how do you bring up the word pneumothorax to a patient? Like as soon as you mention that, and this is back to the point of really what separates a, an expert clinician or a confident needler versus a novice is you can't just say, here's the consent form, um, needling can cause a pneumothorax. And then that big empty dead air is like, well, okay, let's not do that. Like, right, let's try something else. So you need, to be able to, you need to be able to go through the risks. Specifically, I would challenge you, you do have to mention pneumothorax. If you want to mention all of the adverse events, you can say, uh, you know, here's the explanation of needling. Here's my experience. The risks of needling uh, or some of the adverse events from needling are everything from muscle soreness, bruises. If you contact a nerve, that can have uh, some lingering sensations. And then there's a pneumothorax if a, if a needle enters the lung field. So again, whatever you need to add to that, it's the confidence and specifically communicating, deliberately uh, communicating the risks of needling. Honestly, I think uh, physical therapists and probably other rehab providers, we are very risk adverse. Uh, we're very nervous to harm patients. That's a good thing, but we almost come from this history of like, do no good, do no harm. Now we have a needle, we can do a lot of good, but we have to appreciate there's harm. And honestly, we need to know how to present that confidently and appropriately uh, on the liability side with informed consent. And honestly, um, knock on wood, at this point in my career, I can say I've never caused a pneumothorax. Um, and if that's something you can say, maybe that will reassure your patients. But we have to be prepared for, and it's going to happen, whether it's a pneumothorax or not, that phone call, you know, it's happened twice to me, that phone call of, you know, feels kind of strange. Like you mentioned pneumothorax, I Googled it, like I don't feel well. And at that point, despite everything you want to say, what you have to say as uh, a healthcare provider is, you know, I, even, even if you want to give them some assurance, I was very confident with my technique, but what you have to be able to say as a healthcare provider, a doctoring autonomous provider is, uh, you know, some of that, some of what you're saying is expected. Some of what you're saying um, doesn't fit or, you know, we mentioned pneumothorax. Uh, the spiel you have to be able to give is, honestly, I was confident with my technique. The only way we can know for sure is for you to go to your GP or your urgent care. Um, and if that's something you're concerned about, or if you're that concerned about it, that's what I'd recommend. Honestly, the two phone calls that, you know, your heart drops into your stomach through my career, neither of them were pneumothorax. Um, one of them was actually just, uh, an acute respiratory, like a cold, like shortness of breath. And the other one was actually an anxiety attack. And there's other dry needling faculty uh, for EIM uh, that have 
have had similar situations. Again, if you needle long enough, you're going to have someone that calls and says, is this normal? And you can't just deny that, um, you can't just deny everything and say, yep, that's normal. Like, see you next week. Because if it sounds like something that shouldn't be, or it's unexpected, you have to be able to know how to mitigate that or manage that appropriately. I mean, some of the other scenarios from dry needling faculty um, not causing pneumothorax, there was pneumonia. Uh, one of them was a pulmonary embolism. So really all we need to be able to say is that's normal or you know, some of the things you're saying um, is not what we expected. If you're that concerned about it, we have to funnel them. So that's consent. You have to be able to, to mention the risk. I would challenge you to specifically mention pneumothorax. A uh, few final points. We get the written consent first, uh, but you should get verbal consent for every visit. And that doesn't have to be a formal monologue explaining everything you did the first visit. It might be as simple as, hey, we used needling last visit. How did you feel? Are you up for doing it again? Uh, that's a verbal consent. If you can check that in your note, if the patient uh, accepts that, then you're good to go. Um, but you should have that follow-up. I mean, that's just good treatment model, but you should also legally have a verbal consent. So with that, I mean, the final points I'll give, again, I keep referencing this uh, CNA, this HPSO liability claims report. Uh, again, they came out minimal risks of physical therapists using needling. But, uh, and, I, and again, I did say that fractures were the most common injury, hot packs or burns are the most dangerous tools in our clinic. Um, so put all of this into context with our needles. Um, but just to very specifically go through what they say is true informed consent checklist. First, you have to cover the known risks and benefits. I mean, you should obviously be uh, emphasizing, re-emphasizing that there's a reason you're doing this. There's a there's benefit to this treatment. Um, and they say known risks and benefits of the treatment plan, alternative treatment options, meaning it's okay if you're not up for needles. These are the other things we can try. And if you want to try those first, that's fine. Um, number two, uh, HPSO recommends disclosure of clinically indicated touching or potential discomfort. So I think that'll go into kind of the secondary spiel of you know, the best response from needling, whether we're using stim or the muscle will respond on its own, it's called twitch response. Uh, you're not gonna say that's completely comfortable. There is muscle soreness involved. So that'll be somewhere in our spiel explaining it, the potential discomfort. I guess the first part of that recommendation brings up some modesty uh, still for me, and it's not even just male to female, it's um, I'm male to anybody, is the modesty regions of the glutes, the adductors, the pec. Um, I use an app called Essential Anatomy on my iPad, which just shows where the muscle lives. And if I show them where pec major lives, it's like, yeah, the muscle lives right here. Um, and, uh, and this technique, I'm gonna have to have a pretty firm grasp on it. Are you comfortable with me, you know, doing this soft tissue technique in that region? So that's the modesty part. The checklist from HPSO continues and says you have to answer the questions. That's obvious. And honestly, all of us probably immediately have like that, that patient in our head, which is, man, if I answered all 20 of their questions, we're, we have no time to treat today. But if you want to follow this informed consent checklist uh, that's on there from HPSO, they add that repetition of important information to ensure understanding. And again, that's not that you have to continue to go over the spiel, 
you don't have to continuously mention a pneumothorax. But I would say, uh, even when a needle is in, is like, yeah, I know um, right now you're not saying that this is completely comfortable. I try putting as much positive on it as I can. I say, um, if you're doing okay, if this is tolerable, this is exactly the response we're looking for. And I'm a little sarcastic with my patients. And I just say, you know, if I'm putting needles in and you felt nothing, um, that's worse for me. Either I'm not treating a muscle or I'm not treating the right spot. So to some degree reinforce what's expected. And with needling, we know there is um, some discomfort, some muscle soreness. That's, that's a known response and almost an intended response. And then the last two points are written confirmation. Um, my consent form has a little checkbox that they can, uh, they were offered a copy and refused, or you can give them a copy. And then the last piece is providing pertinent patient education materials. So I do think it'd be valuable in your clinic to have a one page, what to expect from needling and, and what you can do about it. And they can be as basic as um, move. It's better to walk around than just sit on the couch after needling, hydrate, um, do your exercises, use heat if you want. So you can make kind of a uh, educational materials, uh, what's expected, you know, you can say 24 to 48 hours of soreness is not uncommon. Um, and then obviously big at the bottom is if you have any questions, call us or send an email. So that's a mouthful and a lot of points. Uh, and if you are really, if you're a clinic owner or a single provider in maybe a cash pay setup, uh, which means you're fully in charge of legal, I would recommend reading this HPSO claims report. I would recommend having a separate dry needling consent form. And I'd recommend very deliberately saving that for a moment after they know what the procedure is, why you're doing it and what it involves. So we're moving to, to uh, spiel number three. Again, if you're joining on the recording, didn't even hit launch on my little podcast until I answered question one. We were live on Instagram and Facebook. So I'll go back to that last. We'll bookend it. We'll start with it and we'll end with it. But then we talked about consent. Number three, and again, this is a common one clinician to clinician that we get uh, on courses. And that is, okay, I, I like this research or I like the way you explain needling and really the therapeutic mechanisms, even the basic science of what's going on with the needle. How do I explain the benefit of needling to a patient? And honestly, uh, I'll give you just the, the story of my career. And that is, um, well, I'll start with a challenge. My challenge to you out there, and this isn't for everybody, but I just think in general, no matter who you were trained through, because I know who you were trained through really dictates um, even how you use a needle, but the treatment rationale. My challenge to you is when you explain the benefit of dry needling is to get away from the trigger point. And again, I'll, I'll tell you full disclosure about where I started and where I am now. And I'll, and I'll give you rationale to why don't just focus on the trigger point. And honestly, I give that challenge. Um, there are great clinicians that they read the research, they buy into everything that's happening beyond the trigger point. But I also know those exact same clinicians, when they have a patient come in and say, um, you know, I'm on board with needling and you start grabbing their upper trap or you're farming around in their vastus lateralis and you find that irritable band, every patient will say, uh, so needling is gonna help this or needling is going to take away that band or what, what's the needle going to do to this sore spot? 
And even those clinicians that buy into this, uh, the larger picture, the central nervous system, the neuromuscular function, a lot of those clinicians go straight to, well, there's this trigger point or this taut band of muscle that needs to be released. And when, the, when that muscle twitches, it's released. So my challenge is to not leave it there. Like whether you wanna go into what a hypertonic band is, or even some of, some of uh, Janet Travell's uh, integrated hypothesis to trigger points, I'm not saying you can't use it. I'm just saying, don't say, don't put, don't hang your hat solely on the trigger point explanation. And here's the full disclosure of, I was very good when I first started needling at explaining trigger points and really that histological, biochemical, and micro environment of a trigger point and even needling uh, or before and after a twitch response, I was really good at explaining that, um, which sucked when I came back and took other courses and it's like, not everything is about the trigger point because I was really good. And honestly, if you see athletes out there, athletes love the discussion of like, you know, a muscle is supposed to be able to contract and relax. There's this full uh, excursion that muscle tissue requires and beyond like um, power production and function of a muscle, uh, a muscle requires that contract, relax, excursion to maintain its health. I mean, if you wanna talk about blood flow, I mean, trigger points, we start using the words like ischemic, hypoxic, acidic, but basically for whatever reason, when a muscle gets stuck in this semi-contracted state, we've now impacted blood flow and nutrition we rely on that contract relax excursion for um, permeability, for capillary exchange. Our arteries bring rich oxygenated blood to our muscles and then pump, 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 squish, squish. But then we need to perfuse out that deoxygenated blood biochemicals so that our lymphatics and venous system can bring it back. So athletes love that because then you talk about this taut band uh, and that's compromising function, um, power output performance, but also tissue health. Athletes love to hear that because then you're going to go in, uh, make it twitch or pump it with stim and, and now it's better. And honestly, we have research that says we can improve the microenvironment of muscle tissue or of those shortened sarcomeres of a trigger point. And even beyond that, if you can reproduce their pain, if it's an active trigger point, if you grab their trap and it reproduces the headache they've been feeling for two weeks, um, I mean, that's great reinforcement for the patient. But again, my challenge is when you explain the benefit of needling to a patient is don't just leave it at the trigger point. And honestly, even though I was very good and I had success with some of the athletes explaining that, um, it's an incomplete explanation of needling. Honestly, it's an incomplete understanding of pain and function and health. We're focusing on, on basically this very peripheral, this, uh, this micro environment, which whether it was the cause of pain or it's an indirect um, result of neuromuscular function compromise, uh, it's incomplete. Because then patients will start saying, okay, so if we are needling, uh, all my bands are gonna be gone. And then you have to start backpedaling and say, well, no, I mean, that's not the goal. Then you start going bigger picture. So if, I, if I'm challenging you to get away from just a trigger point rationale, explaining it to a patient, how do we take the bigger picture stuff and communicate it to a patient? And this is where it gets challenging because um, I'm a huge nerd and I live in academia and on courses. So I love going into, 
when we put in a needle, um, we stimulate the inner neuron pool at the dorsal, dorsal horn. That impacts what's elevated spinal thalamic to the cortex. Uh, everything we know about not just chronic pain, but uh, pain even for an hour of the changes that we start to see of the somatosensory cortex, maladaptive reorganization. So in my head, I'm like, we put a needle in, it's one of the most precise, it's one of the most profound and immediate inputs that I can give uh, this nervous system. And that nervous system could be lower motor neuron, so dorsal horn, uh, afferent, dorsal horn, efferent, or it could be uh, pain processing up and down the column, or it could be cortical input. So I love that. And if you know you all are clinicians joining uh, live, you've probably heard that someplace or another on a course or in research, but how do you communicate that to a patient? Well, to try and give you just a few tactics that I hope will help, if I'm challenging you to get away from the trigger point explanation as the sole or the primary uh, benefit of needling, the first thing I think that will help is get away from the word release and start using words like response or reset. Because even that, that one R word changing goes from, okay, there's this taut band that needs to be less taut. It needs to be uh, longer and more loose. Because honestly, patients um, that don't have the understanding we do will immediately go into, okay, so needling is only beneficial for uh, improving mobility or improving flexibility. And we know that's not true. We can have a positive impact on, on resting tone, on contractile thickness, on EMG latency. We can make muscles fire better with our needle. Um, so just replacing the word release with the word reset or response, I would, you know, the, how would I explain it to a patient and I give them breadcrumbs and let them ask their, ask their questions along the way. But I say, it's like, you know, what we're really finding with needling is that it has a profound uh, response and we can really reset both the tone and the function and ultimately the health of this muscle. Uh, and really, if they say, well, what does that mean? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You can, you can again, start with breadcrumbs. Is like, you know, that muscle just twitched. It's an involuntary response. That's a neurologic response, a neuromuscular response that indicates that we had a, you know, a signal going to the spinal cord and coming back. Uh, and that based on the research we have, that indicates a positive change. Again, not just on the blood flow, health, nutrition of a muscle, but on how it functions. Um, and really, uh, I think what'll help you give the full explanation to a patient is you should always attach um, what you're doing with that specific needle in uh, vastus lateralis, in glute medius. You should always attach it with a very specific, like to them, a patient-specific intent. So when they're saying, so what does dry needling do? I would go very specifically into, at this point in my career, I would say, you know, at this point, um, dry needling uh, is used with all sorts of different patient populations for all different reasons. The reason we're needling your glute minimus is we really want to improve the responsiveness, like how this muscle recruits. That's like how strongly uh, and how quickly. And really, if we can reinforce this with just a few corrective exercises, that's when we can have a long-term impact. So I, I just tell my patients, like a needle will never make um, a weak muscle strong, but we know we have a profound change, immediate change, both on um, how it contracts, how strongly, how quickly. And if we reinforce that, um, and we have two to three to four sessions 
we know that we can have a longer lasting change. Versus, again, I said, make it patient specific. There are patients where I just explain, uh, you know, the goal today is really not to decrease your pain. It's not to improve mobility. You know, picture that uh, a professional athlete, any type of athlete, and you're using needling post-competition uh, with e-stim for recovery. So then the explanation is, you know, we're really not trying to decrease pain or honestly even improve mobility or how this muscle functions. The goal of the needle today is just to generate a muscle pumping action. Like we have, we have lots of big words on what that means, but hemodynamics basically means how we move fluid, how we move blood, and honestly, how we both bring nutrition to a muscle, but also evacuate some of the biochemical waste is to just get muscles pumping. And there are certain muscles that have a better ability to do that. Uh, it's called O2 flux capacity, but basically size of a muscle, contractile strength, even fiber orientation, um, capillary density, all of those factor into certain muscles have a bigger ability to move fluid. And if you're doing recovery, lower quarter, just for an athlete, for a runner, you probably can think of them. I mean, the glute max, vastus lateralis, adductor magnus, gastroc. I mean, aside from it being um, the functional, the muscular two joint muscle of uh, tricep surrey, it is one of the primary venous return uh, engines in our lower extremity. So the explanation there of what I'm doing with the needle is catered to the response I'm intending. So hopefully that helps. I, I feel like I, I towed the edge of going much too deep. But again, the challenge if you're trying to communicate the benefit of dry needling to a patient is to not focus directly on trigger points. If you wanna mention that, if that connects dots for your patients, do so. But if you're really trying to get away from that trigger point heavy or exclusive trigger point explanation, try replacing the word release with reset or response. And that immediately puts you or opens the door to explaining um, the greater benefit, the central nervous system changes. Um, and really you can say, uh, reinforce it. Patients will come in and tell you uh, very good, but some of the strangest things I've ever heard. I mean, you know, first time being needled, uh, my calf was sore, but honestly it felt better. Like honestly, the other side felt tighter. You'll hear all that stuff. But then you'll hear the crazy stuff of, um, I had the best night of sleep I've had in months, or uh, you'll, you'll start hearing all these things. And I would take that opportunity to say, you know, some of those bigger responses, bigger changes I was talking about with the needle is that we do stimulate the nervous system. And honestly, it's not just central nervous system, like your brain attached by a nerve to a muscle, your autonomic nervous system. You can talk all of the bigger uh, systems at play, your sympathetics and parasympathetics. Um, but that is uh, the how to explain needling to a patient. Uh, if I didn't explain already, uh, this is going to be much longer than 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, and hopefully that was helpful. Um, we are live, so I just want to scroll through and see if there were any questions. I see lots of people joining and waving. Thanks for hopping on. Um, Shannon's back there, and actually, I think she's on mute, and we are on the mode where if she's not talking, you won't see her, but Shannon, if you want to introduce yourself, go for it, if you're able to. Uh, otherwise, are there any other questions that you saw pop up as I fix my mouse here? 
Yeah. Hey guys. Um, if you don't know me already, my name is Shannon Long. I take care of uh, most things having to do with customers in general. So um, if you have ever ordered from us or just asked us a question, you probably dealt with me. Um, hopefully it was pleasant. Um, but I am a dry needling clinician as well. Um, I'm out here in the state of Washington with Paul. I guess I should look over here at the camera when I'm talking. Um, but yeah, otherwise, uh, so far we don't have any questions, um, popping up. So you're clear to either continue talking or touch back on, uh, the things that you started or that you, um, discussed before recording. Awesome. Thanks for jumping in. And yeah, if you've ever written an email ordered from us or even uh, half the social media stuff, uh, you've heard from Shannon directly. You know what a huge asset she is to us in our, our presence, our communication. So yeah, I will say if you've been joining us live and you heard all of that, um, class is dismissed. I mean, you can jump off. Uh, again, I did fail to hit the launch button on the recording. So if you're watching this recording after the fact, you missed the answer to the first question. So I will come back and answer that the five to 10 more minutes. Uh, if you are jumping off, thanks for joining. We are gonna be back next week with a guest. Kelly Samus is uh, previously Kineticor, now EIM dry needling lead faculty. She's developed uh, much pelvic content. She's going deep into neuromodulation and pelvic dry needling realm, pelvic pain. Um, so she'll be on next week. So if you are a pelvic person, uh, she is for you. But honestly, the title will be um, why every clinician should have some awareness of the pelvic floor. Or honestly, uh, I'm going to ask Kelly some specific questions of what if there are people out there like me that stay away from the pelvic floor for lots of reasons. I appreciate its, it's importance, but I personally don't need all the pelvic floor. Um, so I'm going to ask her specifically, what are some recommendations to the non-pelvic folks out there, um, muscles, techniques they already know that can uh, improve pelvic floor function. And honestly, how it's not just postpartum uh, incontinence, this is athletes, this is everyday pain, and it's not even just pelvic pain. So that's next week, it's Kelly Samus. Um, join us next week. And thanks for listening, if you were on the whole time. To wrap this up, Benjamin Button, we already covered points two and three, um, again, I failed to hit the button, so let's go back and cover number one. The whole topic of this podcast, if you didn't catch it already, is the dry needling spiel or how to communicate dry needling to patients. Uh, it's a very common question on level one courses, and it takes different forms. You probably heard, how do I introduce consent? What is informed consent? You might have heard, how do I explain the benefit of needling to a patient? Um, but if you're listening to the recording, what you missed is how do I introduce needling to a new patient? And I'm painting two fairly specific patient personas. Number one is that they come in uh, expecting needles. And to some degree, that means they have a pretty good understanding. Maybe they've had needling in the past, or maybe they Googled it. Maybe they found it on YouTube. Maybe they just looked at your website and saw it's one of the things you're trained in. But they come in and basically that patient specifically uh, is not going to be surprised when you mention needles. Then there's persona number two, where it's they more generically referred to PT. They come in uh, 
and you start mentioning needles and maybe they weren't aware that needles were even a part of the physical therapy practice. So how do you introduce needling to those two patients? For both patients, my recommendation was use your assessment, use your evaluation as the segue into the introduction. So for persona one, they came in, they had some loose understanding. Maybe they referred to you directly for dry needling. Like my doctor, my friend uh, said that I should try dry needling for this. For that patient, again, you went through the evaluation, the spiel, the segue is, uh, you're coming in for needling, you know, based on what I'm seeing, I think it's worth a shot. Uh, you can make it more specific and say, you know, for your condition, I have a pretty good understanding of what's going on. Uh, if it's a specific condition that you have experience with, you can even say, um, you know, I see this a lot and I've had great results when we use dry needling. And I leave it kind of open end, like, uh, I think dry needling is worth a shot. Uh, what do you know about it? Or do you have any questions before we uh, get into the consent and all, all that? So really it's just the segue connecting, um, or I guess affirming they came in for needling. You think it's a good idea um, for their condition. Uh, again, there's all of these tangential sub discussions of what's it gonna feel like? Is it gonna hurt? Is it acupuncture? Like you can answer those questions as they come, but that is how I introduce needling to that first patient. The second one is, the slightly more complex. I mean, people take level one and they say, man, I'm jazzed about needling. I wanna use this with patients. How do I introduce this? Maybe even to a current patient where nothing we've been doing so far involves needles, or maybe you're the first one in your clinic or you're a single um, provider setup and you now offer needling, which is something you didn't before. So how do I uh, manage that conversation? How do I introduce needling to maybe a patient or a clientele that didn't know needles were involved. Because we all know needles evoke a different response than a hot pack or TheraBand. So for that patient, I again would use the evaluation as the segue. Um, you know, Betsy, thanks for coming in. Um, I think it was valuable to take 10 to 15 minutes just to talk about what's been going on, what makes it better or worse, how long it's been going on. I think I have a really good understanding based on um, what I'm seeing and what you're saying. I have a pretty good understanding of what's going on. One of the techniques I'm trained in, it's called dry needling. Uh, it does involve the use of monofilament needle. I mean, you can go into as much detail as you want. I would challenge you to keep it short. I would just say one of the techniques I've seen good success with or one of the techniques I'm trained in, it's called dry needling. How do you feel about that? And based on their words or their body language, um, you can give further. And I do typically add to patients, whether it's like the cash pay question, you know, how many visits is this going to take? Even if I really like it, am I coming in twice a week for 20 weeks? Um, or if you see that there's some sort of reservation, uh, is I, do, I would explain, um, you know, uh, throughout my career, I've done lots of techniques and I personally can add, I was a very joint-based, I was you know, a semi-accomplished manual therapist, joint-based mobs and manips. When I started needling, I started seeing results much more immediately. It is a very effective modality. So what I, what I typically add to my script is, you know, the good, the blessing and the curse of needling is immediate changes. We should have a really good idea in two, three, four visits if needling is something that's gonna help or not. Because first of all, you'll see the body language um, settle in a little bit. Again, it's probably worth uh, acknowledging to them. 
that even if it's even if they're on board with giving needling a try, that doesn't mean you're going to be using needles heavily every visit for the next six, 10 weeks. So that's how I'd introduce it to a patient that maybe wasn't otherwise expecting it. Uh, I think it's worth a try. It's something I'm trained in. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you have any questions? And again, that's going to open a Pandora's box. I covered three specific scripts today or spiels. And I know it's kind of my own fault, but I almost talked for an hour. Um, there's probably another two or three episodes we could do. Is it acupuncture? Does it hurt? Um, there's all the questions that you just have to be used to. How long did the results last? All of these scripted spiel questions that honestly, if you missed it, what separates a novice needler and a more accomplished expert needler isn't always needle skill. There are, there are skills like you will become, um, you will master the technique, but honestly, I, I don't think that's what separates an expert from a novice. It's, it's the confidence, but it's the explanation. It's the targeted treatment intent. It's the connecting the dots with the patient on why you think dry needling is valuable. And we know all of the data behind patient expectation dictates 90, 95% of clinical outcomes, which means if they're on board, or honestly, even if they have hope that this might work, you've just significantly increased the chances of a positive outcome. I guess that's what I'm trying to say versus uh, if you're still kind of navigating, you know, I think we can fully admit when you've that first week, that first month you're needling patients, it's a little clumsy. And I think it's fine to admit um, I'm newly trained in this. I know how to be safe, but honestly, um, there's great research coming out. Like my clinicians that do it have seen great results, but I'm still, uh, I want to be very diligent test retest because I'm still seeing where this fits in my, in my practice. But that was what you missed if you logged, well, not if you logged on late, after I hit the button. We covered three topics, how to introduce dry needling, uh, informed consent for needling and what that involves, and then how do you explain the benefit of dry needling to a patient? So this is a long one. Uh, I apologize, feel free to jump around, skip around, um, and then hit us up on the socials if you have any questions. Otherwise, if you are catching the recording, uh, if, if you like video, uh, I don't always recommend seeing my face, but if you want to see my face, it's on YouTube. Otherwise, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, broadcasting worldwide. But that is I Dry Needle to the Point. Shannon, thanks for being in the background. Uh, and again, if you've ever communicated with us, uh, you know Shannon is directly involved with everything day-to-day -day here. We're going to be back next week with To the Point. Um, it will be not live, it'll be a recording, but it will be Kelly Samus, um, the pelvic ninja. She, that's not her, her social media, but that is what I'm going to call her from now on. She is accomplished in the research, clinical application, neuromodulation for pelvic pain, and I'm going to make it as generalized and global, applicable to any clinician out there, even if you're not a pelvic clinician uh, next week. So don't miss that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Have a good week, guys.